from the Apostle Paul. So let me just take a few minutes to recap for you the highlights of this amazing book. As you recall, the first three chapters are what we call the indicatives of Scripture. These speak of our identity in Christ. Uh, the key section of this section, this first section, I, I see as Ephesians 2. So why don't you turn with me there, actually. And, and let me just read through, remind us of our identity in Christ. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a description of every person ever born. We were all born into this condition of being separated from God because of our sin to, to no exception. No one is left out of this uh, understanding of who we are apart from Christ. And then we read those two sweet words in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is our identity. We were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As believers, we must get this right. If we get sideways in any way here and we start putting our trust in good works, we are preaching a false gospel. We must understand our identity in Christ. However, that doesn't mean that our works don't matter. Look at verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, <clears throat> which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In fact, when we, when we find our identity and freedom in Christ, it changes us. We become new creatures. And so we begin to fight against the temptations that are around it. We, we, we live a new life. And that leads really into the, the last half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6. We call these the imperatives of Scripture. These are how now shall we live in light of our identity in Christ. And chapter 4 makes a great transition in this, in this direction. Look at what Ephesians 4, 1 says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because of our, our new identity, our lives should look different. Ephesians 4.17 says we are to no longer walk in the futility of our minds. And as you dig further into Ephesians, we are to put away falsehood, speak the truth to one another, guard our anger. Sexual immorality shouldn't even be named among us. As believers in Christ with this new identity, we are called to walk wisely. Our lives should reflect our identity. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've talked about the fact that the gospel transforms our relationships. Husbands, because of your new identity in Christ, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Be gentle with your wives. 
love her and help her grow into Christ's likeness. We play a major part in that. The gospel changes husbands, wives, in light of your new calling in Christ. Submit to and respect your husbands. Not because you are less than them. Rather, it's a reflection of how Christ submitted to God the Father. This is the way that God created the family. And when we all do the roles to the best of our ability to the glory of God, God is glorified and marriages thrive. The gospel transforms marriages. Our new identity in Christ transforms the child-parent relationship. As children, we are, we are called to obey our parents in the Lord because the gospel changes us. We are willing to come under the authority of our parents because ultimately it's a stepping stone into coming under the authority of Christ, which is every person is called to do. Live under the authority of God. As children, we honor our parents. And, and God's word is so true and good. We honor our parents. Why? So that things go well for us. Doesn't life go so much better as children when we obey our parents? This is the way God has made it. And as followers of Jesus, we have the desire to live that way. As parents, we are called to not provoke our children to anger, but rather to raise them up in Christ. The gospel changes our marriages. The gospel transforms our parenting. It also affects how we work, how we do our jobs. Ultimately, we need to remember that we don't work for our bosses. We work for an audience of one. We work for the glory of God alone. As employees, we do our jobs with joy, without complaining. And we don't just do enough to make our bosses happy. Rather, we excel. We strive to excel in our jobs. And I believe this firmly. Christians should be the absolute best workers in their field, hands down. We should stand out among the rest, not to bring attention to ourselves, but because we are driven by the motive of the glory of God. Employers, managers, supervisors. The gospel changes how we treat those who are under us. You are to treat your employees with respect. You are called to reflect the gospel to them. Certainly there are times where we have to confront employees when they're not performing the jobs that they have been assigned to do, and yet the gospel confronts us, right? But the way that we confront others should look drastically different than the way the world confronts. We do so from a grace-based perspective, and we do so not as those lording it over, but as servants. Jesus, after all, didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And ultimately, when it comes to overseeing others, we must remember that the, the ground is level at the cross. Nobody is better off and better in the eyes of God because you have more money, because you have an authority in your workplace. No, our identity comes from Christ and what he has done. He deserves all the glory. And that leads us to this last section of Ephesians here. And as we consider all Christ has done for us and how we are called to live, it is clear to see that we desperately need God's help. Amen? I hope you felt that. I hope you feel like, man, this is a tough calling to, to live as Christ has called us to live. And it's absolutely true. We can't possibly do this on our own. And Paul saves these verses for last because we need to know that we are in a battle. We are in a war. And in war, we need to make sure that we have the right tools. So let's jump into Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tishikis, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the celebration and the reminder, God, that we need to remember Christ is enough. And Lord, as we ponder the Christian life, Lord, we need to be reminded of the battle that we face against a spiritual enemy. But Lord, you have called us not just to survive, but to stand firm in our faith. And so God, would you encourage us this morning as we Enter into the mission field, the battle, Lord. Remind us of where our help comes from. God, we need you desperately, and so I pray that you would move in power, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we live out our identities in Christ, there are some truths that we need to be aware of. The first thing... uh, The message here, if you want a title, is Be Strong in the Lord. The first thing that we need to be aware of is this. We are in a battle. We are in a battle. And I I would hope at this point it is obvious to you that this is the case, but one thing I've learned in 44 years of life is that we can't assume anything. This life we live is a fight. I've seen far too many people who approach the Christian life and think that God saves you, and that means life is easy. You just kind of coast, like happily ever after, no more problems. He's going to take care of all the hard stuff, and life is, you're just going to coast through, and, and that's absolutely not the case. And nowhere in Scripture do we even see this promise. And so many people give up because God didn't fulfill the dreams that they had for themselves. Do you remember the the parable of the four soils where seed was scattered on the pathway and the birds came and ate it? There's some seed seed thrown on on the rocks and remember it sprouted right away but there were no roots and they died. Some were thrown in the thorns and and as it grew the thorns just kind of choked the life out of it and then some fell on the, the good soil and produced a multitude of fruit. Well, in a couple of those soils in the rocky grounds, there was seemably fruit in people's lives but then they all of a sudden they saw that man it's not popular to be a true follower of christ persecution comes and because there's no true roots in christ those people wither away and the faith was proved to be not real at all there are others who uh, just the the trials and the sorrows and the heartaches of life like the thorns that destroy plants uh, those things choke the life out of those who who didn't really have life to begin with in Christ, and they fade away. Listen, brothers and sisters, we must be aware that we are in a battle. Don't be surprised when life gets sometimes to a certain degree harder for you once you come to Jesus. Even our Savior himself said this in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
Brothers and sisters, we must be prepared for battle. If we want to be the spouses that God has called us to be, is that easy? No. It's hard. It's hard when you are selfish yourself to then move in and live with somebody else who is selfish. And there's conflict that happens, and we've got to understand that there is a battle, and the enemy hates marriage. When you have kids, is it all sweet and easy and just a, just a wonderful life? Like, there's wonderful things about it, but it's hard. And if you add multiple kids to your family, you're adding multiple sinners, multiple selfish people, and life gets difficult and challenging. How is it being a child of a parent who isn't parenting to the glory of God? That's a whole new level of heart as well. I mean, if we ask, if we ask you to raise your hands, I'm not going to, of how many people have parents' baggage that they carry with them today, I, I would imagine there would be some hands in the air. This is a battle that we live in. This world is against us. We must not be surprised by it. So why? Why is it a battle? What is it about life that makes it so challenging? Well, we have to understand that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We must understand we have an enemy, and we need to understand who the enemy is. The enemy is not you and me. The enemy is not Flesh and blood, the enemy is the devil and his minions who seek around like a lion finding someone whom they can devour. Now, I wonder how often that we forget this. I think if we're honest, often we look at people as our enemy and the scriptures say something different. Flesh and blood, they're not our enemy. Certainly we must understand that Everything that we do, we will be held accountable for. We will one day have to answer for everything that we have done. But we must remember the words here in Ephesians 6 that we are in a spiritual battle with a spiritual enemy. So when we encounter the world, we need to remember that there is an enemy who is blinding the eyes of those of whom we are having conflict with. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Have you ever just looked at the world and the things that they stand for and just found yourself baffled that they could believe that? I've had some conversations with, like, with people from my my parents' uh, time frame. And, and do you know that they used to like speak against, like doctors used to speak against breastfeeding? I, I find that hilarious. Are you kidding me? Something you can manufacture in the world by yourself is better than what the mother can give the child? That's ludicrous. Of course, there's nobody saying that anymore. <laughs> like, what better way is there to feed a child than if you're able to do it yourself? Like, God made it this way. This is the ludicrousy of the world, but, but that's just a minor thing, isn't it? The world has gone crazy. For instance, how can, you, how can society justify the murdering of babies in the womb? The atrocity of people boldly proclaiming my body, my rights, and completely neglect this life growing inside them. But listen, they're not the enemy. They've been blinded by the enemy. They can't see. They can't understand. How can society look at someone who was born male and be okay with, with approving someone as ident identifying as a different gender? And then they expect us to not only accept but approve it. And now we have men who are participating in women's sports. Let's just think about that for a second. Society often wants to point to science 
Let's talk about the science of the male and the female anatomies. This is not meant to be a slam to women, but men, generally speaking, are stronger than women. This is not new to us. And yet the world is blind to think that you can be something different than what you were created to be. This is what it means to, to have an enemy. And I, and I prom promise you, in the next five, ten years, I'm fully convinced that there's going to be people coming into the church who've had transition surgeries, who are trying to find hope because the world lied to them. The enemy blinded them. We, we got to understand, when we are wrestling with people like this, and it makes no sense, and we are furious and angry that people could believe these things, don't forget, they're not the real enemy. They've been blinded by Satan, and we need to do a better job, Christians, of praying that God would tear down the blinders. And we need to speak in such a way with urgency and clarity, with grace, speak the truth. There is an enemy out there. Life is a battle. We have a spiritual enemy. But listen, we need not be afraid. The scriptures call for us to be strong in the Lord. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 13. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as the shoes of your, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. <coughs> and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Listen, we, not, we need not be afraid. The Lord is our strength. Be mindful of the battle. Be mindful of the enemy. But don't forget this fact. The Lord is our strength. I'm not going to lie to you. The spiritual enemies that we face can be scary, and, and people have put that fear into me that's probably unhealthy. How many of you grew up in like a very conservative church? Anybody with me? So I grew up in a very, very conservative church, almost, <clears throat> I would say, borderline legalistic. And I remember one Sunday night in particular, uh, they had a guest speaker come. We had Sunday night church, and he spoke about the evils of rock and roll. You ever get that message? And, and this dude was scary. That, that was pretty, his eyes were huge. I promise you they were probably bloodshot. I mean, they were, he was just a scary dude and just talking about the evils of rock and roll. And I remember, and I'm like, I don't know what rock and roll is, but I'm burning everything I have. So I burned my cassette tapes. Uh, kids, ask your parents what cassette tapes are if you don't know what they are. Uh, they're, they're from hell, I think. But anyway, um, that's probably too far, isn't it? But I, like, I have no idea what, like, I don't, I don't want to bring the devil in, and so is this rock and roll music? So I stopped listening to music for like three years. Like, like I don't, am I going to invite the devil in with, with the things that I'm listening to? And, and, and there was fear that was given that, that didn't need to be so. It was a, a legalistic way, but brothers and sisters, we need to remember that we have the power of God on our side. And God calls for us not just to withstand, not just to endure. We're not called to cower in the corner with our head between our legs. God calls for us to not only stand, but stand firm. It's the picture of holding your ground with somebody getting ready to run at you and getting a, a firm foundation. And listen, we have the power of God on our side. Listen, what, what armor, what are we called to put on? Whose armor is it? It's the armor of God. And we need to remember, we're not born with this armor. The, the armor is not even available for us apart from Christ. And what Paul is telling us here is, put on the armor of God. He's commanding us to do this. As believers in Christ, we are to take action in putting on the armor of God. It's not something that is just automatically given to us. We don't come to salvation and all of a sudden, boom, we have this armor on us and we're good to go. This is not something that works that way. It doesn't work that way. There's action that we need to take. The, the armor of God upon salvation is completely available to you upon salvation. But we have to take the opportunity to...
to put it on. So let's just talk through each of these pieces of the armor of God. Verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Think about what, what does a belt do? A belt kind of holds everything together. If, if I didn't have a belt on right now, I might embarrass myself down the road at some point. Uh, when they went to battle, often they'd wear robes, and so they'd need a belt to keep their robe from getting in the way when it came to battle. A belt holds everything together. Spiritually speaking, it is the truth of God's word that holds us together. It keeps everything secure in place. Without the truth, everything goes sideways. We need the truth to keep us in line. Read, uh, look at uh, Ephesians 4 verse 25 with me. It says this, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The truth matters. Never in my years of being on this earth has it mattered more than now. We, we live in a society that wants to say there's no absolute truth. And so, believers, we must stand firm. I've seen so many churches bow the knee to being part of society when we need to stand for the word of truth. Just look at how society has fallen apart because they have discounted truth and have glorified falsehood. Society is crumbling. Believers, we must stand firm on the truth. Put on the belt of truth. Look at verse 14, the second part. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does a breastplate do? Protects the heart. Heart's a pretty, pretty vital organ, right? <laughs> if you pierce the heart, you're done with. And so we need to guard our hearts. How do we protect our hearts? We protect it with righteousness. Here's a couple thoughts when I, when I think of righteousness. First of all, we need to remember where our righteousness comes from. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can't earn righteousness. When we repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ, upon that moment, we receive the righteousness of Christ. So we protect our, our hearts by remembering, I can't earn this righteousness. This righteousness was given to me by another who gave his life for us. We depend and rest on the righteousness of Christ. There's another way I think we protect our hearts when it comes to righteousness. We are called to live right. We are called to live righteously. The way we live our lives should reflect our identity in Christ. When we live righteous lives, it protects our hearts from giving into sinfulness. You see, we don't just we don't just come to Christ for salvation, and then do whatever we want to. That's, some people have this idea like, hey, God's rescued me from my sin. There's no more consequence. So I can just eat, drink, and be merry because God's going to take me home anyway. No, that, that's, not, that's not protecting your heart. We need to put on the breastplates of righteousness. Look at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Brothers and sisters, we got to put on gospel shoes. How many of you value a good pair of shoes? Okay. <clears throat> Listen, I remember the last time that I got a cheap pair of tennis shoes. Now, dress shoes, I don't usually go for a name brand because I'm not wearing those every day. But tennis shoes, I was, in, I was in middle school. And so think about a middle school kid in tennis shoes. Like, you shouldn't be spending a whole lot of money, first of all. But... Like, they, they run them ragged pretty quickly. And so I remember as a junior high kid buying these cheap pair of tennis shoes. And within two weeks, they were starting to rip already on me. At that point, I probably should have, like, talked to my mom and said, hey, look, these aren't working so well. I don't, I don't think we should be going for, for these kind of shoes. But nevertheless, we got the cheap pair of shoes again. Guess what happened two weeks later? The tennis shoes were tore apart. From that point on, I vowed I'm never buying 
I'm, I'm only buying a name brand shoe. So for, the, for me, I favor Adidas. If you prefer an inferior brand, that's up to you. Uh, but I learned, you know what? You pay a little bit extra money up front for a nice pair of shoes, and they last longer, and you actually save money in the long run by investing in good quality shoes. Like Adidas don't tear up like generic shoes. Brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we have the right shoes on, spiritually speaking. That we have the gospel shoes on. Not gospel from what the world might want to say, but the good news of Jesus who saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are churches who are selling what they call the gospel, but really it, what it is is the health, wealth, and prosperity. If you come to Jesus, he'll give you a new car. He'll take care of your family. He'll make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous. That's not the gospel. There's no hope in that. Having a good pair of shoes is vital to us. What do we do with, with shoes? What do we do with our feet? We walk. We are called to walk. We're called to carry the gospel to wherever God has placed us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Brothers and sisters, we are called to go. The gospel is not for us to feel good about ourselves, have good conversation with godly friends, and then call it a day. No, we encourage one another, we gather together, we grow one another up in Christ so that we can go into the world and make an impact for the gospel of peace. The world is lacking peace. But what happened on the cross was Jesus paid the price for us so that anyone who would repent and believe would find peace with God. Let me ask you to turn back to Romans chapter 10. Paul here talks of the feet and what we are to do with our feet and why it's important that we have the right shoes on. Romans 10, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach? Unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We are called to go proclaim the gospel to the world. Use the feet that God has given you. Make sure you understand what the gospel is. Make sure you have the right pair of shoes on. You're delivering the appropriate message that God has given us in his word. Look at verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We're called to put on the shield of faith. What does the shield do? It protects you from the enemy's weapons who are being thrown at you. Throughout our lives, the enemy will throw darts at you continually. You're not good enough. Nobody loves you. There's no way that God can forgive you for what you've done. Why don't you just give up now? How do we fight these lies that the enemy is throwing at us? We steer them away with the shield of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things not seen. Our faith is not in anything that we have done. Our faith is in what Christ has done. And so, Father, we fight those lies that I'm not good enough because, Lord, I'll never be good enough. But Jesus was good enough so that I wouldn't have to be striving so hard for that. You have made a way through the sacrifice of your perfect son. And so I stand firm on the faith that you've given me in you. Put on, take up the shield of faith. Verse 17, very similar. Take the helmet of salvation. What does a helmet do? Protects the head. Pretty important thing to protect, don't you think? Spiritually speaking, we are called to protect our minds 
from the enemy. As I mentioned earlier, the lies that are, we are tempted to believe, there, there's so many of them. And we must remember our salvation is secure in Christ. The helmet of salvation reminds us, I'm not saved by my good works. I don't lose my salvation then when I screw it up. Because then it wouldn't be a gift at all. It would be something that I could earn, and I can't earn my salvation. And so all I can do is rest in the salvation that God's given me that is based on the perfect work of Christ on the cross that secures me for an eternity. We need to take up the helmet of salvation, guard our minds against the enemy. And the last piece of armor is finally a weapon. <laughs> Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. God's word is where true power lies. We are called to lean on the word of God. When we fight our fights, we don't fight with man's wisdom. We fight with the wisdom from God and his word. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. This is towards the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Let us remember this great weapon that we have. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God cuts us. Have you ever read God's word? Or heard the preaching faithfully of God's word, and you feel like, man, God is talking directly to me. That's, that's the word of God. It cuts us in our core. It cuts us in our hearts in a good way. God's word has this ability to speak to us where we are at in life. I, I can't count all the times where I've opened up God's word in the mornings and pursuing the Lord and praying through. And, and, and the conviction that comes over my soul sometimes by my sin based on what I've read. This is what God's word does. Sermons that I've heard where I do feel like I've been, like the spotlight is right on me and he's speaking directly to me. This is what God's word does. This is why I have no other weapon to give you than the word of God. And if anyone ever preaches anything but the word of God, then remove him immediately. God's word is our authority. God's word is our power. And we must not lose sight of that. Oftentimes, too, the word of God leaves me utterly amazed at the greatness of our God. The greatest help that any human has ever given me has not been any wisdom that they've come up on their own. Man's wisdom is so lame, isn't it? Hey, things will get better. Things will always turn around. Hey, they come in threes. This is number three. Number four is not coming. Something good's coming your way. Like, that's man's wisdom. The greatest help that people have given me is when they have comforted me with the word of God. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up into the hill. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. <coughs> the word of God is the weapon he's given us. And so when we're confronting the, the darkness around us, what tools are we using? <coughs> what weapons are we wielding? We are called to carry the sword of the Spirit. But there's one more thing here that we cannot forget that Paul has left us with. Something absolutely crucial <coughs> to this fight. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. 
making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Christian, don't forget the power of prayer. Don't forget the power of prayer. All you 80s and 90s people, how many of you remember MC Hammer? How many MC Hammer fans out there? It's okay. We won't judge you for it until we look at the videos and realize, how did you like that? Uh, in 1990, he came out with one of his songs, most, probably most popular song, Pray. Let's see if you remember the lyrics of the song. I've got to pray just to make it today. I say we pray, right? And I'm, I'm not critiquing that song. Please don't go home and have your kids gather around for worship in this song. But the truth of that song is true. We've got to pray just to make it today. Like we are desperate for God. Whether we live it or not, whether we think it or not, we are absolutely desperate for God to move on our behalf. And so we express that desperation through prayer. Prayer is our profession of dependence on the Lord. We must not forget the significance of prayer. And Paul gives us some pointers here on how we pray. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times. We are called to pray without ceasing. Now, I, I think it's vital that we as a church create opportunities and times where we gather together corporately to pray at specific times for specific things. I think it's important for us as believers to set aside time to pray over specific things at specific times. But really, we should be living a life of prayer. Like continually, without stopping, without ceasing, in everything we do. All, in the Greek, means all. All prayer and supplication. Praying at all times. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance. Don't stop praying. Let it be the culture of your life. Because that, that reality of living in a culture of prayer is a, is a proclamation. I am desperately dependent on God here. I need him to work, and so I am going to live my life daily, moment by moment, through prayer. God calls for us to pray daily, without ceasing. Let me ask you, have you prayed yet this morning, outside of just praying when we've prayed here at church? Did you pray this morning asking God to move in your heart so that when you heard the word preached, it would be powerful and effective and make, bring change to your life? Parents, now I, I mainly escape this most Sundays because I come, my kids are just getting up by the time I leave. My wife has to deal with this and I hear the stories uh, of what takes place um, Sometimes in the mornings on Sunday when it's time to get ready for church, parents, are you praying that God would move in your hearts? Certainly we can pray that our kids would do well, but we have to be responsible for how we respond to them when they're out of control. Are we spending time praying, understanding that the enemy wants to distract you? What greater distraction is there for parents than getting the family riled up and hating each other right before you step in? And you're greeting, hi, good to see you, how are you doing? Great. I'm ready to... Get rid of somebody right now. I might leave them at church right now and go to Panera or something. We have to guard our hearts. We, we must understand we desperately need prayer. And often it is a neglected part of our lives. Notice also verse 18 says, making supplication for all the saints. How often do you pray for other believers? If life is hard for you, I guarantee it's hard for those around you. How often do you pray for those who live in countries where literally they put their lives in danger just by meeting together in the name of Jesus? We are called to be praying for one another. We desperately need one another. God created us for community. He didn't create you for just you and Jesus. He created for you and Jesus and the church. <clears throat> pray 
for the church. And lastly, and perhaps most important, notice what he says in verse 19. And also pray for me that my words, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Are you praying for bold proclamation of God and his word? Are you praying for opportunities for you to proclaim the gospel boldly to those around you? Listen, an easy way to show this, if you were to encounter somebody today and you knew that if they didn't go to the doctor today, that their lives would be terminally in danger. Would you not do everything in your power to share this news with that person? May God move in such a way where we would have even a stronger conviction towards the unbelievers around us, that we would be pleading. I'm not saying every unbeliever, I'm not saying you go into the grocery store and get on the speaker and start proclaiming the gospel, perhaps. I don't know, maybe the Lord will lead you in that way. But like, how, how, how often are we desperately asking God to open doors? Lord, open their hearts. Their eyes are blinded. There's a battle that they don't even realize they're fighting. There's an enemy that it keeps them from seeing the truth. God, would you open it? Lord, help me to proclaim the gospel boldly. Give me the words to say. Help me to trust that if you lead me to somebody in that circumstance, Lord, you're going to give me the words to say. How often are we praying this? How often do we pray for others and not ourselves? Brothers and sisters, let's pray boldly for the gospel to go forth in power. We are in a battle. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of God. Pray continually. I'll leave you with this quote from John Piper. We cannot know what prayer is until we know that life is war. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is certainly that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters from everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Brothers and sisters, are you trying to live in the comfort of your own home? in peace, where it's easy? Or are you living with the understanding that we're in a war? A war that's already been won. But yet the souls of those around you are on the verge of spending eternity in hell and you have the power of the gospel that has changed your life. May we be living as if we are in war. Let's pray. Father, we need you desperately. It's so easy for me to forget that it's a, it's a war between spiritual forces, God. That the people in the world who believe such crazy things in my mind are only that way because the enemy has blinded them. And Father, when we see the truth, keep us from being arrogant The only reason why we're able to hold fast to the word of God is because your spirit has opened our eyes. Remind us of the battle. Remind us of who our true enemy is. But God, help us to be strong in the Lord. God, you've you've laid out the armor of God for us to put on, but we have to put it on. Father, if we're not students of your word, then we're not going to be ready for war. Lord, convict us of those around us who are heading to an eternity in hell. That we would be so burdened to 
that we would pray for open doors. God, that you would open for you would open doors for gospel conversations that we can have with the lost around us. And God, help us be faithful to walk through those doors and give us the words to say, keep us from living in the flesh, keep us dependent on the Spirit. I thank you for the strength that you do give us in Christ through the power of your Spirit. Lord, keep us faithful in the battle, in the war. Let us be proclaiming your truth until we breathe our last breath. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me leave you with some action steps that you can put to, to work this week. Uh, I encourage you to memorize Ephesians 6.12. Let me just uh, remind us of what that says here again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this dark present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think this is so critical to, to remember who our true enemy is. It's not people. It's, it's the enemy, the spiritual enemy, who has blinded them to the truth. And then I encourage you to find comfort and solace in Psalm 91. This just speaks to the fact that God is our redeemer. God is our, our refuge. He's the one that we can run to. We have no need to fear this enemy. And then a question for you to ponder this week. Are you wearing armor? Are you putting on the armor of God? Are you, do you know the word of God because you've studied it and you've sought the Lord through it? The armor just doesn't appear on you. It's not magnetic, right? It doesn't just, like you've got to put some effort into it. And then lastly, pray for gospel advancement. We have an enemy. The enemy's power is strong. That's why the road to heaven is narrow. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. We need God to break down the walls that are blinding people from the truth of the gospel. Well, church, let me remind you, you are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden, so let your light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Have a great week.